beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if you knew there was an earthquake coming, what would you do? Children, you can think about it. If you knew there was an earthquake coming, what would you do? I think you would move away from all buildings that could maybe fall down and all trees. You don't want them landing on you. And you would try to find an unshakable safe place. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, and then again in verse 21, the Lord promised in the future there would be a spiritual earthquake that would shake not only the earth but also the heavens. Maybe when you get home today you can read uh, Haggai 2 to see the connection even clearer to the passage in Hebrews we look at now. And as you're reading Haggai chapter 2, you will see that the Lord was talking about how this shaking would separate believers out of the world like a sieve that separates rocks from sand and then bring them all together to worship in the new temple that they were building at the time of Haggai where the Lord Jesus would walk. And the writer to the Hebrews reminds the people about Haggai's prophecy and announces that when Jesus Christ returns on his great day, God will shake the earth and the heavens too. It would be a, a more thorough shaking. And when that happens, all that is temporary will be destroyed. It will fall off together with all who rebel against the Lord. And only those who embrace Jesus Christ as king and judge will remain. It's a, a picture that we can easily uh, imagine in our own minds. It's something that's easy to remember. And the Holy Spirit now wants us to think about the consequences of this prophecy today so that we carefully evaluate what we are leaning on for support. And we ask the question that comes into our mind, maybe it happened to you as you were reading 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 17, you ask the question, will what I am leaning on, will it stand in the final judgment? And the gospel of our text today is that by the grace of God, whoever believes in Jesus Christ, the one who re remains the same yesterday and today and forever, that person is a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, even in the final judgment. In the unshakable kingdom we receive, the Holy Spirit writes the laws right on our very hearts, and he transforms us so that we want to live according to the pattern and the instruction that's described in Hebrews 12, verses 28 to the end of chapter 13. And so in the next few weeks, we will look at the attitudes and the activities that are worked in the lives of those who believe in Jesus Christ, the attitudes and the activities that are unshakable, that won't be destroyed when our Lord Jesus returns. And I preach to you the gospel under this theme, as members of Christ's body, we are part of an unshakable kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In this kingdom, God works reverent worship, brotherly love, and contented trust. 
something, three, three things the children can think of. What do we need to hold fast to in order to, to enjoy that unshakable kingdom? It's worship and the love, brotherly love, and contented trust. And you notice the reference to worship at the end of chapter 12. Believers who belong to the unshakable kingdom of God, they participate in the heavenly worship service that we, we read about in Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24. And we participate in that heavenly worship service even though we are here in Edmonton, in Emmanuel, in this church building here on the earth. And we participate in that because our, the minister we have is Jesus Christ who is in heaven as our advocate ministering for us in the holy places. That's Hebrews 8 verse 2. And he lifts up the prayers that we offer up here in this building and he lifts up the songs that we sing, the songs of praise, and he brings the offerings that we bring into the very presence of the Almighty God. We are a part of something very special when we gather together in worship in this place. And if you look at this and you think about it, the question of Hebrews is, if Mount Sinai, which could be touched, if that was impressive, with its blazing fire and its darkness and the, and the tempest, that's a storm, the, the thundering divine voice. How much greater is the heavenly, lasting city of the living God that we are a part of in the new covenant? That's what Hebrews 13 verse 14 reminds us of. How much greater is what we have today? And the Spirit helps us to see how God's grace makes us a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken like Mount Sinai was shaken. This has powerful consequences in our lives already now. Hebrews 12 verse 28 explains that he makes us grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus... As a result of this grace in our hearts, he also makes us want to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I was just reading verse 28. When people worship, they are reacting to the fact that they have received God's grace with gratitude. People who are not grateful to God for his grace will not want to worship him. But if you listen to his voice as he warns you from heaven, as we saw in verse 25, you will want to respond with acceptable worship. And that's described for us in the first four commandments and also as these are referred to in our text when we worship God because of his grace toward us, we will come before him, says the Holy Spirit, with reverence and awe. This is the attitude of our Lord Jesus Christ when he had offered up prayers and supplications to the God who was able to save him. That's what we read in Hebrews 5, verse 7. There we see that God heard Jesus 
because of his reverence. And the Lord wants us to have the same attitude when we come before him today. And to help us in this, the writer to the Hebrews reminds the church of the Lord's words in Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, where God or Moses warns God's covenant people, he says, The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. His grace and his love toward you does not take away from the fact that he is, is holy. It doesn't take away from the fact of his terrifying holiness and his sovereign power. The God who saves you and the God who protects you is a consuming fire, says Scripture, who cannot be trifled with. Nothing unholy can enter his presence. And the fire of his holiness, we read in 1 Corinthians 3, will test what sort of work each has done. That means the dross, the 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 unvalue, the, 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 the material without any value, the dross of our works that cannot stand before him. Nothing but the refined silver of Jesus Christ's righteousness will remain. That's what the, the worship services look like. Just celebrating the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The worship that cannot be shaken is humble worship that claims nothing for ourselves, that doesn't try to draw attention to any individual, but simply celebrates God's work for us in his Son, Jesus Christ. Reverent worship. We don't summon God to our worship services but aware of what our sins deserve. We bow down before his holy and his majestic presence with trembling, with thanksgiving for his grace in the name of our only mediator, Jesus Christ. It's very clear, a consuming fire. We, we don't come to casually go out for a coffee with a consuming fire. It's not like casually meeting our friend in a coffee shop. But we, in our worship, as a result of God's grace to us, and understanding this grace, we are bowing before the majestic, holy God and our sovereign King, who is called a consuming fire. And we come in order to thank Him for His grace to us. He saves us from eternal damnation. And so every part of our life becomes overwhelmed with thanksgiving, the desire to, to be grateful, to, to, to react, to respond with thanksgiving. And so Hebrews 13 verse 15 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In the new covenant, after Christ's sacrifice and his ascension into heaven, 
We no longer need to offer up breads and oils and, and animals as Thanksgiving sacrifices. We, we have the sacrifices right on our faces. We, we, we acknowledge His name, and, and we can do that all the time. We acknowledge His name with our lips. Psalm 107, uh, stanza 8, that we sang as a pre-service song, speaks of this praising God and offering a sacrifice of our lips. And then verse 16 also says we show thanksgiving by doing good, by sharing what we have. God is pleased with this worship that recognizes who he is. And we see this also in our brotherly love. That's something that lasts throughout eternity. The Greek word uh, Philadelphia, that's Hebrews 13, verse 1, and I only mention the Greek word because it's the name of a city and it's easier to remember than Philadelphia means brotherly love. And it's talking about the fellowship between all the children of God who belong to his family, both sisters and brothers. The Philadelphia bond of love that joins believers all over the world together as children in the same family of God. It's an eternal bond of brotherhood and sisterhood that outlasts even marriage. As members of the same kingdom that cannot be shaken. Think about the consequences of that. You can know that you will spend eternity with that believer in the pew beside you or in front of you, behind you. Think of the consequences for your life now. As members of the same body of Jesus Christ that, that stands in God's presence forever, you cannot tell a member of the church that you don't need him or her. 1 Corinthians 12 is very clear about that picture. We are interdependent. We're dependent on one another. That, that's how the body is formed. Everyone leaning on one another. This family love in the house of God is such a defining mark of the church that the Holy Spirit does not say, look here now, my children. You need to start showing love to one another. But he says, let brotherly love continue. You cannot be a Christian if you do not show brotherly love, is the point. His starting point is, is simply that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ and who has the Holy Spirit will want to love their brother and their sister. 1 John 4, verse 20, points out that the inverse is also true. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so the writer uses the word continue because he knows that we as Christians are always desiring to do this. But he also makes it a command. Let brotherly love continue because he recognizes that our sinful natures do not find it easy to always love our brothers and sisters. In our text, the Holy Spirit urges us then to continually cultivate such love. 
when we find ourselves causing offense and fighting by thinking of ourselves more than we ought so that we allow to others less than we ought, we are reminded how careful we must be to nurture the seed of Christian love by watering it to, to make it grow, attending to it regularly. Believers in the unshakable kingdom, when we want to hold on to things that, that will not be destroyed in the ju judgment, we are purposeful in our involvement in the communion of saints. We become intentional in our activities. And sometimes when we feel that there is a lack of brotherly love, it is because we ourselves haven't been able to contribute as much as the family of God needs us to contribute at a given time. And then we need to pay attention to the exhortation of our text and let Christian love continue to be seen in our proactive participation in the many opportunities that are available to us. You know about them fellowship groups and there's a church life committee organizes many activities. There's helping hands, there's Bible studies, you, you know the list. And to help us in this, the Holy Spirit gives four examples that highlight different areas where we can let brotherly love continue. With reference to the sixth and the seventh commandment, he says there's the area of hospitality, even to strangers, the area of visiting prisoners, the third, remembering those who are mistreated, and the fourth, honoring marriage. Well, when speaking about hospitality, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit refers back to those men, Abraham and Lot, Genesis 18 and 19, who received angels into their house without even knowing it. Hospitality that will last through the return of Christ is hospitality that is also shown to strangers. And if the patriarch's love towards strangers was rewarded with the privilege of serving angels, how much greater of a blessing it is for us when we show hospitality to the least of Jesus' brothers today. In Matthew 25, the Lord himself says that when we give water and food or clothing or soup or buns to our brothers in need or we welcome strangers or we open our home to those who need a place or visit the sick or the imprisoned, we are doing these things for him. It's like receiving Jesus Christ's body into your home. Never mind angels. The kingdom that cannot be shaken is full of generous, hospitable Christians who are known for the love that they show even to strangers. We get the picture of what that unshakable kingdom looks like. Then it mentions visiting prisoners as though in prison with them. In early days, as it is also in many countries in the world today, when the government puts someone in prison, they don't always provide much more than just the cage. I know that in Brazil, the family members were counted on to bring food and drink to their family members in prison because the government didn't give it to them. You need it to survive in prison. 
And with that picture in our minds, we can see how important it was for the brotherhood to come beside the family members who were in, in prison. But, but when they did so, they were implicated for the same crime. They were showing kindness to someone who was a Christian. And so it came with the great danger of being charged with the same crimes. It took a lot of courage to bring some bread to a Christian who was imprisoned because of their faith. Because you, you're the same thing. Brotherly love meant going and caring without being ashamed of your fellow Christian's confession or the consequences. Now sadly, imprisonment for faith is not a New Testament church problem. It's not a Hebrews time problem. But even today, there's ongoing serious persecution. I just received a reference to a letter from a minister in China, a pastor, May 12, 2018. He was seized, he was beaten, he was, he was imprisoned because he was preaching the gospel. That's today. That was just a few weeks ago. And so we see this is a serious command. It's something that we as believers need to think about with all seriousness, our eyes to our brothers and sisters. And then it talks about those who are mistreated. When you see someone causing harm to a brother or a sister, maybe not imprisonment for their faith, but in any other way, the Holy Spirit tells us, remember those who are mistreated since you are in the same body. That's verse 3. Keep them in your mind. Make, make sure you remember them. Make sure you support them. If you see a, a fellow classmate or, or maybe a member in the church being harmed, teased, excluded, maybe for silly things because of the, the color of their hair or, or their name or their clothes or, or their interest or, or, or for their willingness to stand up for what is right and not go along with what is sinful, then you're seeing someone who is being mistreated. And our text says you are called to remember them, to support them, to, to defend them. To ensure that everyone knows that in the unshakable kingdom of God, there is no room for violence, judging and condemning others to exclude them, to, to push them away, to harm one another. In the kingdom that cannot be shaken, we are all part of one body. It's the theme. And the rule of the one body is that when one person causes another to suffer, he or she causes everyone to suffer. When one suffers, all suffer. And then Hebrews 13 verse 4 mentions marriage. Also here in the broader category of brotherly love. In the family, the household of God. You see, sometimes people take marriage outside of the context of the church and brotherly love, and then they treat their own husbands or their own wives worse than they would the person in the pew beside them or in front of them or behind them. But the Holy Spirit goes the other way. He tells us that although everyone must love one another, all of us, married and single, all of us who belong to Jesus Christ will show special respect 
for the exclusive relationship between a husband and a wife. God himself, says our text, has shown special honor to this relationship when he promised to expel the sexually immoral and the adulterer. They will be shaken off. If such people do not repent of these sins, they will be destroyed when God shakes the heavens and the earth. Only those who repent from the worldly fascination with immorality and sexual promiscuity will be able to remain in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's very clear language. And brothers and sisters, let us be aware of the eternal riches we have in Jesus Christ so that we may be content with the blessings that we have as we trust in God who will never leave us. The third thing that we cling to, hold fast to, and is unshakable, is contented trust. The Tenth Commandment. Be content with God and with His plans for our lives. Your place in the church, your own status, whether you are married or whether you are single, even content with your material blessings. The writer to the Hebrews urges us to keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what we have. And, and those words, with what we have, they can also be translated with what is available to you. That's a nice thing to think about. You have what is available to you, what God has given to you. We have a, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why would we give up this birthright like Esau did? And you can read about that in Hebrews 12, verses 15 to 17. Why would we give that up to cling to some temporary treasures here on the earth? And we are reminded to, to see how dangerous it is to turn away from, from God and his unshakable kingdom, running after only that which will be destroyed, moth, rust, and then that final fire. The Lord is speaking to us from heaven. Let us hear his voice so that we are not tempted to be the captain who goes down with his earthly possessions. The writer to the Hebrews then rem remembers how the Lord told Joshua to be strong and courageous and to always remember that his covenant God would never leave him or forsake him. And although these words first spoken to Joshua in his context as leader of God's people in a specific time, and then later again spoken to Joshua, the priest in the time of, of Haggai, the Lord has confirmed the promise also to us in the New Testament when he sent his spirit to dwell in our hearts so that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is that once that spirit dwells in your heart, God will never permit you to be lost. Those words are written in black and white. We can read them. They are a sure promise. And so even when our, our feelings, our emotions, our depression prevents us from feeling the truth of them, those words are there. God will never leave us or forsake us. You do not need to look any further than the Lord your God who has revealed himself to you in his word. God will never desert. He will never forsake his covenant people. 
And this promise is the reason for our confidence. Not the things that we have done, but God's grace, his power, his love. And then that knowledge helps us to speak the truth, the ninth commandment, not to think the wrong way about things. We can truly say the words of Psalm 56 as a, as a reaction. We could say it with confidence every day of our lives. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Oh, the language of the subjects of an unshakable kingdom. That's powerful language. That's, that's confidence in God. We are like little children looking out into the world with their big, strong daddy standing behind them. Except our big, strong father is the eternal creator of the heavens and the earth who has shown his unconditional love to us when he saved us from our sins, who, who is a, a consuming fire in his holiness. Yet a gracious father who holds our hands, who is within our hearts so that we are called temples of God. God will never forsake himself. So we never need to be afraid of the threats of men. We don't even need to be driven by the approval of others. Why would we allow others to determine our lives? We are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. An eternal heavenly father, the consuming fire, he, he holds us by his hand. That's a way to face life. The heavens and the earth, they will all be shaken because our God is almighty and sovereign and powerful and just and holy. But we, we're not afraid. We're not glued to the things that will be destroyed and shaken up. We're glued. We're glued to reverent worship to brotherly love, to contented trust. And as we offer up acceptable worship to God in, in reverence and in awe, and, and, in, and as we are content with God's grace, mercy to us, we can see clearly we don't need those things that can be burned, that will be burnt up, that will be shaken off in the great spiritual earthquake. We are members of the body of Christ. Our head was already in heaven interceding for us. We're a part of an eternal worship service. May his name, may God's name be glorified and honored as we acknowledge his name with our lips and glorify him by showing love to our neighbors and trusting in him. Amen.